0: You're listening to... Whoa! Potluck! Potluck!
1: And you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian-American authors. My name is Marvin Yue.
0: I'm um, Rirayu.
1: And we are here today with another great author interview. Um, this time with Emiko Jean, the author of Tokyo Ever After, as well as Empress for All Seasons and will Never Be Apart. Um, Tokyo Ever After just came out a month ago or two months ago. It came out in May and was a book club pick for Reese's Book Club. Um, the book club of Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, we had a great time chatting with her. We've had a lot of really great author reviews these past few weeks. And I gotta say, um, this was a fun, like, you know, before this one, we read a thriller and it was really great to kind of have a palate cleanser with a nice, like, fluffy rom-com. Is it a rom-com? (laughs) Kind of like a Princess diaries Oh,
0: yeah, it's a very comedic uh, story with lots of, uh, you know, glitz and glamour and, of course, like, court drama and a little bit of, like, mean girls. Um, yeah. If you've ever watched the movie What a Girl Wants with Amanda Bynes and Colin Firth, uh, you can expect something along those lines. But and,
1: Asian, which is yeah, the best part Asian, about it. Yeah,
0: but Asian, which is great. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Tokyo Ever After, it tells the story of Izumi Tanaka, who is an all-American... It tells the story of Izumi Tanaka, who is a Japanese-American living in a small, mostly white, Northern California town. She's raised by a single mother who is a professor of botany, and she has never known her father. But one day, through um, a series of circumstances, she discovers her father's identity, and he turns out to be none other than the Crown Prince of Japan, which means Izumi is literally a princess. So she finds out a way to connect with her father and she travels to Japan. And it is a country that she's always dreamed of going. But obviously, being a princess isn't all ball gowns and tiaras. There's a lot of expectations. And of course, uh, succession drama, paparazzi, mean, conniving cousins, and a really hot bodyguard that. <laughs> Might you know be her soulmate? You know the the works.
1: You know I haven't watched the Princess Diaries until this year when, when my girlfriend made me watch it with her. But um, I can see the appeal and the definitely. I think for all of the you know Asian American kids who watch that movie, kind of wanting to relate, but that, wanting to relate a little more. I think this story is for them. I want to see the movie version of the story. I think that. Oh cool. yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: definitely. I mean, I love the idea of modern royalty and we see it a lot in like European royalty. Um, A lot of books about uh, the American girl who hooks up with the prince and then she has to learn how to deal with the Um, (laughs) in-laws. So this is a different take on the story. And it's nice to see our own culture and tradition being, uh, you know, the star of, of the story and i don't know i just like really i just really like this trope of for forgotten princess <laughs> has to suddenly learn uh how to be a princess it's it's just fun and yeah i'm really glad that we we got to read this so yeah
1: we had a great conversation with emiko so um uh, without further ado um let's get to the interview uh, please enjoy
0: And we are here with Emiko Jean, the author of Will Never Be Apart, Empress of All Seasons, and most recently, Tokyo Ever After. Uh, Emiko, so nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me today.
1: Yeah, congratulations on your recent book launch. Uh, my girlfriend has already read your book. She, she read your book before I even had a chance to like <laughs> receive your book. I think... Uh, <laughs> She's very excited that I'm talking to you right now. So,
0: Emiko, we usually like to ask our authors, like, if they were always a writer, if it's a passion that came later in life. Um, I know that, you like, I was looking at your bio earlier, and it seems like you've juggled a lot of things in your past In your past mm-hmm. life. You mm-hmm. were an entomologist, you were a candle maker, you were a teacher. So how did you become a writer?
2: Yeah, so... My road to writing and publication was really windy and long. Um, I'd always been a really voracious reader. Uh, you know, I remember getting stacks and stacks of books from the library. Uh, my mom would take me there like every weekend and I would get, you know, back then, I think libraries have limits now, but back then you, it was as much as you could carry. <laughs> so I remember like weighing myself down with, uh, books. Um, but, uh, I never really saw myself in any of the books that I read. Um, I, looking back now, as I'm kind of examining my adolescence, I, um, I had never read a book by a Japanese American author or even an Asian American author. And I had never read a book as a young person that featured an Asian American protagonist. Uh, and so I think that was really formative and it, it closed that pathway. So although I loved reading, I never thought that I could be a writer. Um, and so um, I pursued a bunch of odd jobs, like you just said, <laughs> none of which I was happy at. So like I tried my hand at being like, a quote unquote, small business owner, which meant that I was trying to be like a florist or a candle maker. Um, I got my master's degree in teaching. Uh, my parents uh, were teachers. Uh, so I tried that for a little while. Um, I tried on entomology, which I actually really loved, but, um, I ended up loving writing slightly more. So I was really unhappy at the jobs that I was working at. Um, and that's when I started to write my first book. I think for me, at least when I was kind of in this, like really unhappy period of my life, like I was searching for something and, um, that's why I started, I, I actually started writing the book, uh, the first book that I ever wrote and cut my teeth on that will never be published because I think it's so bad. Um, it, uh, I wrote it while I was working and I would pretend to be, uh, sending emails and I'd be typing chapters into like the body of the email. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. So I wrote that book and I tried to get an agent with that first book and it was during the Twilight craze. And so I wrote something that had like werewolves and like fairies and stuff in it. And um, anyways, I'm like even embarrassed telling you that I wrote that. But um, it was kind of what I like what I said. I cut my teeth on it and uh, and I ended up obviously not getting any representation for that Um And then I decided to try my hand at a thriller, at a YA thriller. And, um, and that's the book that, that, uh, that got me representation with my agent who I'm still with today. But even then, you know, my first book will never be a part was a thriller and the protagonist was white in it. So I still hadn't kind of reconciled like putting myself in the page or being a Japanese American writer and what that meant. And, um, I really think subconsciously I believe that I wouldn't get published if I didn't have a white main character.
1: So, what was the process like for you to like reconcile with that? Because your second book actually is another court drama uh, taking mm-hmm. place in like, an imperial court, um, and then your third book it's straight up Japanese American main character. Was that a process for you to get comfortable with that, or was that um, how how did you come around to like featuring um, Asian stories?
2: Yeah. So it was very much an evolution and a self-examination. So I, um, around that time, there were more and more, this is kind of when the diversity movement and YA literature also kicked off. And I was seeing the emergence of more Asian American writers in the YA space, uh, writing stories with Asian characters. And I decided to write a fantasy mostly because I wanted to study ancient Japan, um, And I was interested in fantasy, so I kind of merged those two things together. Um, you know, my interest in kind of ancient Japan and then also my interest in like magical worlds. (laughs) Um, and so, and, and that was really purposeful for me when I decided I want to write a book that features, you know, an entire Japanese cast of characters and explores, you know, the myth, the myth and folklore of Japan. Um, And I really see it kind of as a building block too, to Tokyo Ever after. I mean, if you look at them, um, you know, as two separate pieces, they really do look quite different. But for me as like a writer, um, I did this kind of study of ancient Japan, which I think really prepared me to write this book about, you know, modern Japan.
1: Yeah. When you started writing more own voices stories, like Mm -hmm. how did it feel? Did it feel different?
2: Uh, yeah, it felt different and empowering. Um, it also felt, um, like I was doing something that was more for me. Um, so it was also, it was really fulfilling, but it was also scary at the same time because I wasn't sure. Um, you know, I make my living at being a writer and that's always kind of in the back of your mind is, is this book going to sell? Will it find a readership? Um, and so there's there's always that concern, especially because it was right at that tipping point where, again, like most of publishing, and it still is, is dominated by white authors and white characters. So, you know, it's it, it's kind of scary to be putting yourself out there.
0: I want to ask, like, because this takes place in modern day Japan with modern day uh imperial family Mm -hmm. Uh, how much research went into it i know like with the british monarchy there are people who are like really into it Mm -hmm. um so are you like a big imperial family japanese monarchy i guess like (laughs) otaku
2: i guess yeah uh yeah i'm not a super fan (laughs) um (laughs) but i am really interested in them um especially because you know in many ways, they represent the good and bad of Japan and the culture of Japan. Um, and so I think that's why it was so important that, you know, you know, is there, the the way that Tokyo Ever After started was writing about a girl, a Japanese American searching for her identity and that placement in the imperial family and, uh, that like princess diaries trope came secondary to that. Um, and so it was really purposeful that I chose the imperial family because I wanted it to be, um, you know, the embodiment of Japan.
0: Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up like Princess Diaries, because that's how the book was pitched to me. They were like, oh, it's Mm -hmm. Princess Diaries meet crazy rich Asians. And, you know, as someone who went to film school, I like, I'm very skeptical when people pitch me with like, this meets this, because usually (laughs) that is not how the story goes but it's like an easy shorthand um it's a very
1: convincing pitch i mean yeah my girlfriend she was like i'm in because she loves the princess diaries
0: (laughs) oh yeah like i feel like the princess diaries is so informative for um, Mm uh girls of our generation because like everybody dreams (laughs) of like when you're like a mediocre person who is caught in between cultures it's like i want to You know, I want to be extraordinary. You find out one day that you're a princess or you're like the chosen one. And Mm -hmm. for us, it's, you know, we didn't grow up seeing Asian American princesses (laughs) for a lot of um, like stories where you find like lost princesses or lost chosen ones. They're usually white. So um, Mm -hmm. I just really like the fact that this was a familiar story, but with a different face with my face and i was just wondering like when you were writing this uh did you relate to izumi like was izumi um kind of like a
2: mirror to your own growth as a japanese american writer yeah so absolutely so izumi is kind of a wish fulfillment for me and she really goes on a journey that i myself didn't go on until you know i'm in my late 30s so until probably just now and reconciling my Japanese American identity. It's a journey that I wish I had had uh, much earlier. Um, Growing up, I always felt really bifurcated and that, um, you know, I wasn't ever Japanese enough and I wasn't ever American enough. And this was pointed out a lot to me by classmates in society. Um, And uh, it, it took a long time for me to like really consider myself a whole person, um, with, you know, a unique story, but, uh, that I didn't have to live up to kind of like the standards of what it means to be Japanese or what it means to be American.
0: Going back to like princess diaries, like obviously like Mia in that story, like she is pretty much like the opposite of royalty. Like she needs to take these classes, but in your story, Tokyo ever after, uh, Izumi has the additional challenge of You know, not knowing the language. And it's on top of like courtly, uh, court etiquette. She has to like learn Japanese culture. And, you know, that's, I think that's just like a whole nother layer of like the Asian American experience of (laughs) Mm -hmm. just like, uh, I know where my parents are from, kind Mm -hmm. of, but, you know, I don't speak the language, I don't know the culture. It kind of seems like the motherland is almost a fantasy land because you are like you
2: don't really know about it, but you hear about it. Yeah, there's such an ache to belong somewhere. And I don't there's not an easy answer because if you go to Japan, you really you don't fit in as in, you know, a Japanese American. Like it's um you, you you stick out in many ways. I mean you can blend sometimes, but um as soon as you start speaking or you know, your mannerisms, all of that. Uh, you don't blend. Um, And so unfortunately, there's not, um, you kind of have to find a home within yourself, if that makes sense. Um, Because even though there is that ache to return to Japan and to be amongst other Japanese people, it is true that, you know, for some, you won't be Japanese enough.
0: Have you um, ever been to Japan just out of curiosity?
2: I have not. I'm planning on actually going uh, if everything looks good travel-wise, um, this next spring with my with my dad, who's never been either. Um, so we're kind of doing that that kind of heritage trip.
1: I also love that you set Izumi's hometown as like the Mount Shasta area, because I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I first heard, oh, she's from the Northern California, you think Bay Area, which mm-hmm. is pretty diverse, but you set her in Northern California, which is like north of San Francisco and uh, Sacramento, which is basically Oregon at that point, and it's you know yeah. it's probably yeah. one of the few places in California where you can believably be the only Asian in the entire community mm-hmm. and I thought that was really yeah. smart,
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, so my cousins g- grew up in Mount Chasta, and we would go every summer to visit them and I just Mount Chasta is a very unique setting, and um I always like to think of settings as like characters um. And I really wanted Izumi to kind of mirror where the same kind of town that I grew up in, which was Beaverton, Oregon, which was mostly white. Um, it was a little bit too close to a big city for Izumi. So that's why I placed her in Mount Chasta. I wanted her to be pretty remote. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a mostly white community that was the kind of operated off of colorblindness. And so. Again, her experiences there in Mount Chasta very much mirrored my own growing up.
1: But I love that you still captured the sense of, because of her um, Izumi's Asian Girl Gang, which is, Mm -hmm. like, I grew up in San Gabriel, which is, we're full, it's full of Asians. But I have, Uh. I do relate to the experience of going to, like, say, a conference where everyone is white and finding, like, Mm -hmm. the three people of color in the corner. Yeah. And just being friends with them. I feel like that's, like, a very universal Uh, experience we all have as minorities in this country
2: yeah yeah um so
0: speaking of like the asian girl gang i mean i Mm -hmm. i love that um i didn't really have like an agg growing up (laughs) but i did have friends who like it it was reminiscent of my of my friend's chaotic energy and i just like love that these girls are just not they're they're funny they're crass they're you know they're you know chaotic they don't go by the rules um so i just wanted to ask like how did you come up with this group and how was it developing um izumi's relationship with her girlfriends
2: yeah so i really wanted to create an asian girl gang is actually something also from my own childhood I don't know if you're getting this theme here, but a lot of the book is on my my own childhood. Um, So I had, I had, there were like a few Asians in my middle school and we made this like Asian girl gang and stuff. And we thought we were really tough and everything. Um, But uh, yeah, she, I just, I wanted to create these friendships that um, were really fun and really supportive. Like I had considered like, should the friends fight at some time? Should there be like a wobble in their relationship? But I really wanted like this group of girls to be, um, to be really consistent and just support Izumi on her journey and where she goes and uh, to kind of, to, to veer away from that mean girl trope. Um, but yeah, some of the conversations they had, I had so much fun writing their <laughs> conversations and I actually, my editor, like I am, there's a scene where in the, they're in the school library and they're all talking. And um I had like, I had, I had written probably like 10 or 12 pages of the scene. And my editor very kindly was like, I think, I think we need to cut this by five pages because oh. I just put like, it was just all dialogue and conversation. Uh So we ended up having to cut some of it down, but I feel like I kept I kept
1: the heart of it. Yeah, I mean, that dialogue was a lot of fun. I can imagine, like, and I think it's really great for, like, representation-wise, too, because, you know, you get... The stereotype for, like, Asian mm-hmm. people are still kind of quiet, meek, and then you have, like, Nura and Gloria just, like, throwing barbs at each other. Mm-hmm. And I think their relationship was my favorite in that girl group because um, they talk the way some of my friends talk to each other. Yeah, yeah.
2: They have a, like, a love-hate relationship. I liked... I, I think this got cut from the book, but like they wouldn't, um, get up to get a glass of water for each other, but they would give one another a kidney. Like it's that type of relationship, you know?
0: (laughs) So like we, we talked about like the dialogue and, you know, I, that, that was like one of my favorite parts of reading this book. The, the snarky voice of Izumi, uh, was Izumi's voice the first thing that came up when you were, um drafting this book or did the plot come up first?
2: Uh yeah. So she she's what came first. And that's what usually happens with books when I write them is you start to hear like the character's voice in your head. Um and Izumi was I was so lucky because a, a lot of times with my other books I spend like a whole manuscript like finding the character and like figuring out their arc and then having to go back and reshape it. But with Izumi, um she like sprung forth fully formed, like what her journey was going to be. And I just always pictured her with like a great sense of humor and kind of irreverent, um, and plucky in some ways. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was very fortunate that she, she came out the way that she did. Yeah, definitely, like
0: one of the funnest parts of reading this book. I just love the the barbs, uh, references to to like <laughs> pop culture, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, it was just like so much fun to read. Um, you said you've yeah. never been to Japan before, so I'm curious as to like how you uh, went about your research. Did you? Um, did you go on Google Maps? Yeah. And did you talk to other people who went to Japan and kind of like wrote down their testimonies, I guess, and weave that into your narrative?
2: Yeah, yeah. So yes, to all of that. I, um, I have lots of friends and family in Japan that helped me fill in like the detail work, like what color the traffic lights are supposed to be, what Sidewalks look like that kind of thing. Um, and then I also utilized Google Maps. I, um, like traced Izumi's route from the airport to the Imperial Palace and then what that would look like. I had to fill in some details, like the architecture of the personal homes of the Imperial family members isn't public. So I got to have some fun kind of creating what that home might look like. You can narrow in on Google Maps and see like, the roof of, of their houses. <laughs> so you kind of try to make like an approximation of like where a garden might be or, um, where, you know, rooms might be situated, you know, based on, you know, where the front is. Uh, but I had to, I did have to use some creative energy for that. Um, and then a lot of research books, I devoured royal biographies to kind of make sense less of, um, like those those details like the city details and the home details but more on like what their personal lives look like um and what their schedules look like like their 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 private lives um that was a little bit trickier yeah
0: with like the itinerary i was like this is this is quite intense and i don't know how accurate this is but you know like if i was in Izumi's place i'd be like nope nope um like i like, I'm one of those people who comes up with a schedule and like halfway through, I'm like, this is not this is not going to happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would not hack it as a royal for sure.
2: Yeah, I read there's a and don't quote me on the actual number, but I read somewhere that the um, the emperor has over 1500 engagements a year. That's an approximation. But um, yeah, so their their lives are really, really rigidly scheduled. yeah
0: Yeah, with like the the japanese like imperial family um like i thought it was like really interesting on like how the i guess succession works and how that is like a really big part of your book because uh izumi's father is the crown prince and you know (laughs) he was a bachelor before and uh you know there's I feel like the Japanese imperial family, because they have such a strict rule with succession. So, for those who are unfamiliar, um, it is a patriarchal line, and the male heir has to come from the paternal side of the family. So, mm-hmm. any sons from the maternal side of the family is not uh, eligible for the throne. And I know, like recently, that's been like quite a debate amongst uh, the Japanese. Uh, I guess, imperial household, because Mm -hmm. uh, the current... I I guess, like, the current heir, quote-unquote, because she's not really an heir, is uh, Princess Aiko, who Mm -hmm. is 19 years old. She is the only child of the current emperor, Emperor Naruhito, and people have been kind of, like, wondering, like, should we change the Mm -hmm. law so that a female can... Succeed as an heir, so I'm just like curious as to like was that part of your plan to have, um, I guess, Izumi be the only child of the crown prince, and how that creates tension amongst like the family and the family dynamics.
2: Yeah, it very much was purposeful and inspired, as you said, by what's happening right now in Japan with succession. Um, You know, it's hard because I, I love Japan and I think there are very many, there are lots of wonderful things about it, but this is something that I feel like is wrong about Japan. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I, I believe that Japan is one of two, uh, countries in the world that has a succession, uh, rule like this. Um, the other one I think is Saudi Arabia, um, where only males can inherit, uh, inherit the crown um and I, I do believe that the constitution needs to be ratified to include female successors um but it is a hot topic right now and i don't know um i don't know if it will change i hope it will
1: i'm not super familiar with even like everyone let's talk about the british monarchy too i'm mm-hmm. like oh whatever it's, it's fine yeah. but um, <laughs> it's interesting how It's such an interesting way to like take those like anachronistic um, concepts and put into like a modern day story. Right. Mm -hmm. Because where else can you get a story set in like 2021 about battles for succession? And um, yeah, it's interesting to read. But I was like, I can't believe it actually happens in real life sometimes.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess it it lends itself, I guess, to the story well, because it makes it feel like there's something old world about it, which very much is. (laughs) It seems really outdated, but um, it's really fascinating to me. And also, you know, so surprising, Um, again, especially with how, um, you know, modern Japan is uh, in other aspects, but with this um, so traditional.
1: Um, Well, we talked about the Asian girl gang, but... Mm -hmm. So when my girlfriend was reading this book, she was giving me the play-by-play uh-huh. of like all the shitty things the twins did, oh, and the yeah. cousins did, <laughs> uh-huh. and so um how like did you have a lot of fun writing like the snarky like snobby dialogue from from the the royal family side?
2: Yeah, I did. I had um I kind of I love the shining twins. So the shining twins are twin cousins, twin first cousins of Azumi's, um, who really are like the royal charms in the imperial the the you know the the charms and the Imperial bracelet. Uh, they embody everything that Izumi wants to be and kind of everything that Izumi hates. Uh, so she kind of revels and reviles them at the same time. Um, but yeah, they were so much fun to write and, um, to kind of get into, you know, them psychologically. There's a second book that's coming out, uh, next year. That's, uh, the second book in the series. And, um, the Shining Twins make a reappearance. And I've just enjoyed uh, enjoyed them, like, writing their character arcs and also trying to redeem them a little bit, if that's possible.
0: <laughs> if that's possible.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, I really liked
0: uh, The Shining Twins. They're, they were, like, uh, some of my favorite characters in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why I like them so much is because, uh, like you said, they represent... Uh, all of the traits that Izumi loves and aspires to and also hates at the same time. And it just reminds me of um, how, like, in Asia, there is so much pressure for women to be, I don't know, I guess, like, perfect, to Mm -hmm. look perfect, to look slim, to Mm -hmm. do everything perfectly. And of course, Mm -hmm. there's that in American culture as well. But Mm -hmm. I feel like it is the definition of being, like, the perfect, like, perfect girl is, is you know, a lot broader here. You can get away yeah. with a lot more faults than in mm-hmm. Japan, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, like, I-, I just love the fact that Izumi is not the model minority, and mm-hmm. she's, like, a subpar student, and she's yeah. messy, and it's just, you know, the opposite of what um, a lot of Asian girls aspire to and mm-hmm. um yeah and like I also felt like a lot of the dig that the Shining Twins like threw at Izumi like with her body particularly mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. it's like oh like that dress it makes you look slim and
1: yeah, yeah. it was just
0: like <laughs> oh I like I felt that like
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah um yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a culture clash there for sure, especially because, um, you know, Izumi is, she is third generation Japanese American. Um, and so really, uh, you know, that, that kind of pretty imperfect value wasn't instilled in her. In fact, her mom really went the opposite direction with her. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, like I said, the Shining Twins are someone, that she kind of yearns to be, she wants to be like a perfect princess and she, mostly because she wants to fit in with Japan. Um, But at the same time, her kind of the way she was raised won't allow her to be that person either. Uh,
0: So like Izumi strives to be the perfect princess and she's kind of thrown into, uh, I guess like learning everything about being a Japanese princess. uh, The moment she lands in Japan and, um, she partially wants to be a perfect princess because she wants to bond with her father, uh, Crown yeah. Prince Mock. And I actually really like the trajectory of their relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I like their first meeting. I was like, wow, this is really awkward, but also yeah. really believable. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's just like, what do you say to someone who you've longed to meet for 18 years? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like you discover that your dad is a prince and. There's a lot of protocols, um, yeah. and I thought I thought that relationship was going to be like really rough. I thought like mm-hmm. uh, with I I guess I fell into the stereotype of like oh Japanese men you know yeah. they don't like to show affection or mm-hmm. you know they show it in a very uh, different way. It's not like physically affectionate, but I was really surprised that um, he was so keen for this relationship to work yeah so my question is like was it like was that always your plan to have this relationship be um i guess warmer than mm-hmm. uh than i guess like traditional japanese uh male daughter relationships are often portrayed as in media
2: yeah I mean there was a definite uh i wanted to diverge from that a lot and so um and so some of it is i mean fantasy like it you know, (laughs) the chances of the actual crown prince of Japan having like an illegitimate child and then embracing her, that's very complicated and would probably not happen. (laughs) But since this is in very much, you know, in very many ways, a fairy tale, um, you know, I wanted their relationship to be warm and understanding and for him to be open to it. Um, he's still, I feel like a little standoff sometimes, standoffish sometimes, like they're trying to figure each other out. Um, but really, I again, I wanted the focus of the story to be, you know, Izumi's, you know, journey towards reconciling her Japanese American identity. And I felt like, um, you know, having kind of a, her, her relationship with her dad break down or having any sort of conflict within that, like big conflict. Would detract from it. And I really wanted him to propel her forward and, uh, and really to be a meaningful part of her journey. And I think the only way he could do that was by being warm and receptive and, uh, you know, giving her a boost. Like there's a scene where he helps her find her family history, uh, which I thought was always so sweet, um, and so meaningful for her.
0: Yeah, I definitely awed at that scene, um, mm-hmm. as, especially like as someone who, you know, like my family doesn't really talk about mm-hmm. um, our extended family or a family history. I know like yeah. bits and pieces. And I think that's an experience that a lot of Asian-Americans Feel um like we said before, like we mm-hmm. know where we come from, but not exactly. And Asia seems to kind of be like a fantasy land.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, especially with Izumi's character, as like, would you? I mean, she's. I guess she's raised as a yonsei, right? Mm-hmm. Because she was raised by her mother, but she's you know her father's from the motherland. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as, as a fourth generation, it's you're so far removed from that original. Yeah. Like um entry point into the country, right? Like you're essentially as American as you can possibly be, but also because, you know, you still look different. You yeah. you're not entirely there too. It's it's a weird place that. I don't know. Like I can relate to. I know that future generations from my family will probably relate to more. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I you know, I didn't know a lot about my family history and it wasn't something that we really talked about. Um, you know, there are little details that drop were dropped like during my childhood and everything, but for the most part, and especially after World War II, um, you know, we kind of buried, you know, where we came from, um, you know, in order to kind of just survive in America in many ways. And so assimilation, and that's also part of, you know, Japanese culture too, is you assimilate to, you know, you blend you try to blend into wherever you go. There's, you know, be harmonious with wherever you are. <laughs> um so just now, like in the last year, my um, aunt has been sharing all of this writing from my grandmother and my great grandmother and all these papers and they're, it's their entire immigration story. And it's really rich. And I can't believe that uh, I, you know, it's taken this long for us <laughs> to really to really see it.
0: So, when I read the book jacket, and it said that there was going to be a romance between uh, Izumi, the lost princess, with her stoic bodyguard, I, like, swooned, I love this, (laughs) I was like, this is definitely, like, I know that it's not possible in real life, but at the same time, it just fueled my... Girlish yeah. fantasies. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was it what was it like uh coming up with Akio's character and mm-hmm. just like the development of the romance? Because they kind of start off on the wrong foot and yeah. Izumi kind of just has a lot of um like it's like, oh, he's really hot, but yeah.
2: also like <laughs> I hate him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I wish this is one of the times I'm just going to say, like, honestly, when I decided on the romance, I was like, I love a good hot bodyguard trope. And that's why I decided to run with it. There wasn't like any big, <laughs> like, big, meaningful thing. I mean, he did become a really meaningful character. And, you know, over time he developed into, um, you know, this great B storyline for Azumi, but it started off with just like, God, I I really like a bodyguard trope. Let's try to make that work. I I respect (laughs) your decision. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and sometimes it is just as simple as that. And I, you know, I wanted it to be again, I love a good like enemies to lovers trope too. There's so much conflict and tension in that. When I go back and I read the story now, I don't know if it was so much enemies, but more opposites you know, to friends, to lovers. Um, And they really are like, they couldn't be on, you know, further sides of the spectrum, you know, personality wise. Like she's so fun and lively and vibrant um, and funny. And um, he's so stoic and serious. And um, and yeah, and I think that's where their clash came in. So I don't know if it was necessarily that they were enemies, but just complete opposites. So they kind of had to learn more about each other before they could really work together and develop a friendship.
0: Yeah. They both make some snap judgments Mm -hmm. um, right off the bat. But I like the fact that they do bond over their, I guess like the, the the commonality that they have is they love their family and they want to do their best to please their family, to protect their family. And they go about it in different ways, specifically because of, like, their personality clashes. Um, like, Akio, he has this expectation to uh, be an imperial guard because that is that is what imperial uh, staffs' families do. It's passed mm-hmm. through the generations. And legacy is kind of, like, a big thing in Japan <laughs> and yes, also yeah. East Asia. Mm-hmm. And with, like, Izumi, like, it's something that she kind of has to learn like, mm-hmm. because America it's very you know it's all about individuality, all yeah. about pursuing your own happiness, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like learning a new language in a way yeah. because um, yeah, it's like different expectations, and I really like that they bond over um over their struggles on that, and I think, yeah, yeah I think it really helped push their relationship to the swoony romantic Mm -hmm. territory where Akio like writes poetry. And I was like, wow, love really makes (laughs) every single person a poet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A lot of that is just, you know, wish fulfillment. (laughs) Like who (laughs) wouldn't want a hot bodyguard to write you, write you ancient, ancient poetry. Um, But yeah, I think he, you know, they they bonded over that, like the ex like you were saying, just the expectations that their families had of them and um and what felt real and right to them. And for, you know, Azumi, she was kind of moving towards that. Uh, she wanted to embrace those expectations and explore them. And he was moving away from that. And I I don't it's interesting too, because their paths seem to be kind of diverging, but really it it is what brought them together because they were both questioning things at the same time. I really liked
0: the relationship with um, Izumi and her mother. Like, I love the fact that, like, mm-hmm. Izumi's mother, like, wore these feminist t-shirts that yeah. I really want to have in my real life, and I'm <laughs> probably going to hunt it down in Etsy. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I like the fact that she was a single mother, and there isn't this stigma. Like, it's it's just, like, my mom raised me to be proud and yeah. to, uh, you know, have pride in my individuality and my independence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I had a happy childhood. And yeah. that's not something you can really say proudly in East Asia. There's a lot of stigma against uh, single mothers and mm-hmm. um, a lot of like governmental aggression towards them mm-hmm. as well. Like they can't get uh, jobs as easily. There's mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot of stigma. Um, so I really like the fact that you had like this contrast of traditional Japan where mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, gender norms that you have to conform to. And not to say that like America doesn't have gender norms. It's just mm-hmm. uh, dealt more differently and the consequences are are different. So I just want to say like I really appreciated that contrast <laughs> and uh, Izumi's relationship with her mother. That's not really a question. I just wanted to point <laughs> that out.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I did I did too I enjoyed writing you know their relationship it was really sweet and and soft and warm and um I just I think I've been thinking more about like the mom dad romance as I'm drafting like the second book and about who Hanako who is azumi's mom is and um I just see her as a really independent woman and um and you know and she raised her daughter in a certain way so that you know, when, and if her daughter did find out she was uh, a princess, that she would be equipped for that. I think that was, you know, the mom's intent all along.
0: Um, so we're winding down to the end of our time. And I just want to ask, I heard that your book was a Reese's uh, Book Club pick. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your reaction to uh, hearing that news? Because um, I know that that is like a really big platform. And if you think about how even though there's been a lot of progress towards having uh, more authors of color uh, be represented in publishing, it's still mm-hmm. like a really rare thing that we see. Uh, so that's, you know, like what was your reaction to it and how has the response been?
2: Yeah, so my reaction was disbelief. Okay. <laughs> like I, I think they told me they told me about. The book club pick in January and the book came out in May. So I knew about it months in advance. And then they said, well, you can't tell anyone. So I knew about it. And then I had to sit on it for a long time. Although I did, I told my husband and I made him read the email to make sure I was reading it correctly. Cause I was like, it doesn't say you've been passed on the Reese book club. It says you've been chosen, right? Like I had to <laughs> make sure it didn't, I, I wasn't reading wrong. Um, and so it was really exciting and surreal at the same time. Um, and then God, it just it went so fast. Like the book launched, and that was the same time that the news dropped too that it had been chosen for the book club. Um, and you know the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Again, like I said at the outset of this conversation, it's so scary to put yourself out there and to be vulnerable, especially when um, you know, you are working in fiction, but a lot of, a lot of this material was authentic and was about my whole whole journey. And I had so many doubts, uh, you know, in the process of writing this, like, should I write this story? You know, do I have a right to write this story? Um, and there was that conflict and I've had so many, not just Japanese Americans, but Asian Americans reach out to me and say, you know, her journey resonated with me. And I saw myself in the pages and, uh, it's, it's really, really amazing.
1: Yeah. Not to mention the book cover is really beautiful. It's one of those covers you pass by a bookstore. It's like, I gotta pick this up and take a look at it at least.
2: Yeah. That, that was one of those things that, um, came together so nicely. I was, um, I expressed to my publisher, like, the importance of seeing um, a Japanese-American girl on the cover, and they agreed that that was also important to them. And um we kind of batted around a few ideas, like, should we do, you know, illustrations are kind of really big right now on YA covers, and we considered that. I sent in a list of, like, all these Japanese things that I like, you know, cultural elements of Japan, and one of them, of course, was origami and someone mentioned paper cutouts and then from there it just kind of snowballed and um, we got a really, really beautiful paper cutout cover.
1: Yeah. So this is the first book of a series and this is one of the questions that my my girlfriend asked me to confirm is that there is a second (laughs) book. It is a duology.
2: (laughs) It is a duology. Yeah. It was picked up in a two book contract and, uh, yeah, there. I actually I have finished the second book. It's with my editor right now, so I'm going to start on revisions here soon. Um, wow. But yeah, there will be more more Azumi.
1: Did you write both at the same time, or did you write the write one first, then start on the second?
2: I wrote one first, and I actually sold Tokyo Rafter after like on a partial. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't even a full manuscript. It was like ten chapters of the book, <laughs> and then it was bought, and I was like terrified because I was like, oh my god, not. <laughs> I have to actually write it. Um, uh, so that was slightly terrifying. So it sold like Tokyo Ever After sold like two years ago. Um, I think a lot of people are always surprised. Like when you sell a book, it doesn't automatically publish it. Like it takes a year or two to in production and everything. Uh, and then so right after uh, I finished writing Tokyo Ever After, I uh, I started the second book um, and I turned it in actually the day before Tokyo Ever After published. So I, I kind of got it by the skin of my teeth. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so I like my question is you you mentioned like going to Japan after uh, the pandemic kind of settles yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is something that you want to do in Japan? Like what what are your dream activities?
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess the better question is like, what is something I don't want to do when I'm <laughs> in Japan? Um, I want to visit all of the, you know, imperial sites that I wrote about as close as I can get to them, um, which might actually get me kicked out of Japan if I try to get too close. But um, uh, I I want to see everything. What feels the most important and the most emotional is that we recently found out that there was some land inherited uh, by my dad and his siblings that was passed down uh, according to heritage laws in Japan from his great grandmother that's in Fukushima. And so we're going to go try to see if we can find that land. Um, So I'm hoping, I'm hoping to kind of maybe contact a historian or a registrar and see if we can, we can kind of ferret out that information, but that seems so fun. And also a little bit like a treasure hunt, which is always so exciting too.
1: That sounds amazing. I, I I haven't done any heritage travel, but it sounds great that you'll have like some purpose in your visit too, in addition to all the fun stuff you'll do.
2: There's yeah. a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> there's yeah. so, there's so much. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just right now like narrowing down itinerary and how long we want to stay in Tokyo and then where else we want to visit while we're there. Um, and just trying to figure out, you know, where it's not only my dad and I that are going, it's uh, my two, my three siblings. So we're going to, oh. we're going to go in heavy.
1: Well, Emiko, thank you so much for joining us on Books and But It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for writing such a great book. And we're looking forward to, we're all looking forward to the conclusion of Izumi's Adventures. Um, Tokyo Ever After is available now at booksellers everywhere. So if, if uh, listening to us talk has gotten you uh, excited about it, go check it out. Uh, but Emiko, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you um, for having uh, me.
0: Where can our listeners find you, by the way?
2: Oh yeah, thanks for asking. So I'm on Instagram at MACogene Books. And uh my website is MACogene.com. It might be MACogenebooks.com. I'm pretty sure it's MACogene.com. Um and uh I'm also on Facebook MACogene Books. Um so any of those places. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: And that was our interview with Emiko Jean, the author of Tokyo Ever After, available at bookstores everywhere. Um, man, I'm looking forward to that second book. Um, I'm glad it. I, I'm glad you turned it in. So that I means it's coming out what in about a year or two.
0: In publishing schedule, it would be a year from now. A year. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I find it really funny that your girlfriend was just like hey so that's mine right like with your <laughs> <laughs> with your copy of tokyo ever after well,
1: apparently i didn't redefine print when we um define a relationship but apparently everything i own is belongs to her now
0: i mean that's how relationships work <laughs> <Marva>. <laughs>
1: that was i the only one who was unaware uh, well um don't forget that our july 2021 book symbol but book club pick is an ocean of minutes by thea Lim. It is a sci-fi novel about time travel and capitalism, um, and we'll be discussing that book at the end of the month. Uh, but until then, uh, thanks again for listening to Books and Boba and our interview with Emiko Jean. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Re Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue follow the book club on twitter and instagram by going to at books and, boba, and engage with us on goodreads on our goodreads group you can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app don't forget you can support books and boba and asian american authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com.